0: We have all heard about we have all heard people complain that television is too violent that too many programs are mediocre and so on but it can be argued that one of television's greatest disadvantages is simply that it takes center stage in our living rooms one way to evaluate that argument is to consider what life was like before TV sets took their place in American homes. Television producer and writer Linda Ellerbee remembers well what life was like then, and what it was like after her family bought a television set. In this selection from her book, Move On, she details some of the differences. I am reading Television Changed My Family Forever by Linda Ellerbee. Santa Claus brought us a television for Christmas. See, said my parents. Television doesn't eat people. Maybe not, but television changed people. Television changed my family forever. We stopped eating dinner at the dining room table after my mother found out about TV trays. We kept the TV trays behind the kitchen door and served ourselves from pots on the stove setting and clearing the dining room table used to be my job. Now setting and clearing meant unfolding and wiping out TV trays. Then when we'd finished wiping and folding our TV trays, dinner was served in time for one program and finished in time for another. During dinner we used to talk to one another. Now television talked to us. If you had something you absolutely had to say, you waited into the commercial, which is, I suspect, where I learned to speak in thirty second verse. As a future writer it was good practice in editing my thoughts. As a little girl, it was lonely as hell. Once in a while I'd pass our dining room table and stop, thinking I heard our ghost. Sitting around talking to one another, saying stuff before television, I would lie in bed at night listening to my parents, come upstairs, enter their bedroom, and say things to one o- to one another that I couldn't hear but it didn't matter. their voices rocked me to sleep. My first memory, the first one ever was of my parents and their friends talking me to sleep when we were living in Bryan, and my bedroom was right next to the kitchen. I was still in my crib then. From the kitchen, I could hear them, hear the rolling cadence of their speech, the rising and falling of their voices, and the sound of chills. Now, as I read this part, I'm not sure if they're, well, I guess they're playing some type of game, Uh, Because she did mention chips. So it says two pairs showing. Call. Check. Call. Call. Clink. I raise. Clink. Clink. See your raise and raise you back. Clink. 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 Call. Clink. Clink. I'm in. Clink. I'm out. Let's see them. It was a song to me. A lullaby. Now, Daddy went to bed right after the weather and Mama stayed up to see Jack Parr. Later, she stayed up to see Steve Allen and Johnny Carson and and even Joy Bishop, but not David Letterman. I went to sleep alone listening to voices in my memory. Daddy stopped buying Perry Mason books. Perry was on television and that was so much easier for him, Daddy said, because he could never remember which Perry Mason books he'd read and was always buying the wrong ones by mistake. Then, reading them all the way to the end before he realized he'd already read them. Television fixed that, he said, because although the stories weren't as good as the stories in the books, at least he knew he hadn't already read them. But it had been Daddy and Perry who taught me how fine it could be to read something you liked. Twice. Especially if you didn't know the second time wasn't the first time. My mother used to laugh at Daddy. She would never buy or read the same book again and again. She had her own library card. She subscribed to magazines and belonged to the Book of the Month Club. Also, she hated mystery stories. Her favorite books were about doctors who found God and women who found doctors. Her most favorite book ever was Gone with the Wind which she'd read before I was born. Read it while she read it while she fixed dinner and read it while she washed up. She'd washed up. Mama sure loved that book. She dropped book of the month after she discovered as the world turns. Later she stopped her magazine subscriptions except for TV guide. I don't know what she did with her library card. I know what she didn't do with it. Mom quit taking me to the movies about this time. Not that she'd ever take me to the movies very often after Mr. Disney let Bambi's mother get killed, which she said showed a lack of imagination. She and Daddy stopped going to movies, period. Daddy claimed it was because movies weren't as much fun after Martin broke up with Lewis, but that wasn't it. Most movies he cared about seeing would one day show up on television, he said. Maybe even Martin and Lewis movies. All you had to do was wait and watch. After a while, we didn't play baseball anymore. My daddy and me, we, we didn't go to baseball games together either, but we watched more baseball than ever. That's how daddy perfected the art of dozing to baseball. He would sit down in his big chair, turn on the game, and fall asleep within five minutes. That is, he appeared to be asleep. His eyes were shut. He snored. But if you shook him and said, Daddy, you're asleep, he'd open his eyes and tell you what the score was, who was up, and what the pitcher ought to throw next. The art of dozing to bass baseball. I've worked at it myself, but have never been able to get beyond waking up in time to see the instant replay. Daddy never needed instant replay. And no, I don't know how he did it. He was a talented man, and he had his secrets. Our lives began to seem centered around and somehow measured by television. My family believed in television. If it was on TV, it must be so. Calendars were tricky and church bells might fool you, but if you heard Ed Sullivan's voice, you knew it was Sunday night when four men in uniforms sang that they were the men from Texaco who worked from Maine to Mexico, you knew it was Tuesday night. Depending on which verse they were singing, you knew whether it was 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock on Tuesday night. Wow! It was the only night of the week I got to stay up until 8 o'clock. What? My parents allowed this for purely patriotic reasons. If you didn't watch Uncle Miltie on Tuesday nights, on Wednesday mornings you might have trouble persuading people you were a real American and not some commie pinko foreigner from Dallas. I wasn't crazy about Milton Berle, but I pretended I was. An extra hour is an extra hour. And if the best way to get your daddy's attention is to watch TV with him, then it was worth every joke Berle could steal. Television was taking my parents away from me, not all the time. But enough, I believed. When it was on, they didn't see me, I thought. Take holidays. Although I was an only child, there were always grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins enough to fill the biggest holiday. They were the best times white linen and old silver and pretty china, platters of turkey and ham, bowls of cornbread, dressing and sweet potatoes and ambrosia, homemade rolls. Glass cake stands holding pineapple, coconut, angel food, and devil's food cakes, all with good boiled icing. Boiled icing? <laughs> there was apple pie with cheese. Apple pie with cheese. I'm trying to figure. Okay. <laughs> there were little silver dishes with dividers for watermelon pickles. Wait. Watermelon pickles? black olives, and sliced cranberry jelly. There was all the iced tea you'd ever want. Lord, it was grand. We kids always finished first. We weren't one of those families where they make the kids eat last and you never get a drumstick. After we ate, we'd be excused to go outside where we'd play. When we decided the grown-ups had spent enough time sitting around the table after they'd already finished eating, which was boring. We'd go back in and make as much noise as we could until finally four or five grown-ups would come outside and play with us because it was just easier, that's all. We played hide-and-seek or baseball or football or dodgeball. Sometimes we just played ball. Sometimes we just played. Once in a while, there would be fireworks, which were always exciting. Ever since the Christmas, Uncle Buck shot off a Roman candle and set the neighbor's yard on fire, but that was before we had a television. That was before we had a television. Now, holiday dinners began to be timed to accommodate the kickoff, or once in a while the halftime, time, depending on how many games there were to watch. But on Thanksgiving or New Year's, there were always games so important, they absolutely could not be missed under any circumstances certainly not for something as inconsequential as being it and counting to ten while you pretended not to see six children climbing to the back seat of your car Shh! not now linda linda jane the aggies have the ball but you said you promised linda jane didn't your daddy just tell you to hush up we can't hear the television were you talking well I can't dispute her story that television changed families because it not only changed her family but it changed most of America's families where no one sits around and puts placemats on the table to sit. it was a purpose to sit together and have conversation about your day. No one has time for that anymore, and if they do do it, they're not talking to one another they're all of their heads are in the cell phone, and that's the same thing you can see when people go out to dinner at restaurants they're looking at their phones and I've even found my own self guilty of that sometimes, and I said, "Let me put this thing away for a minute. let me talk with my 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 daughter let's talk with let me talk with my son you know let me talk with my sister let me." speak with my dad, you know it's priorities you know, we don't always have to have our face in social media, social media has become the new television set because that's what it sounded like to me as I was reading along with it when she was saying all of these things that television took the place of, even with the children playing They didn't even have time for that. And I know some of you probably can remember when some of your parents might have even said, "Um, you got to wait till the commercial comes on because they're in their favorite soap opera. You had to wait till the commercial came on. You either waited till the commercial came on or waited till the total show went off. Oh my goodness. I don't know who watches them anymore. Well, I do know one person that watches them. And um, I'm thinking that they still watch them as religiously as they used to. But I just can't. I, that much time, an hour, to sit there and watch someone in a pretend life. But yeah, we have got to try to um, take back control of our lives. I just wanted to share that with you. I'll be right back. I am the Empress in the living room. Empress Wahi. back a national commission on excellence in education published A Nation at Risk in which the commission reported on a rising tide of mediocrity in our schools other studies have pointed to students poor achievement in science, math communication and critical thinking what can our schools do To improve students' performance, Anita Garland has several radical ideas, which she explains in this selection. As I read this with you, let's think about whether or not we agree with her points. I am reading Let's Really Reform Our Schools by Anita Garland. American high schools are in trouble. No, that's not strong enough. American high schools are disasters. Good schools today are only a rite of passage for American kids, where the pressure to look fashionable and act cool outweighs any concern for learning. And bad schools, heaven help us, are havens for the vicious and corrupt there metal detectors and security guards wage a losing battle against the criminals that prowl the halls hmm. oh she's calling them criminals they prowl the halls Wow let's see okay desperate illnesses require desperate remedies. And our public schools are desperately ill. What is needed is no meek, faint-hearted attempt at curriculum revision or student-centered learning. We need to completely restructure our thinking about what schools are and what we expect of the students who attend them. Now, I, I agree about the restructuring, because the only thing that I ever agreed with what Bill Gates said was when I read an article. I think it was like in the Parade magazine. It used to come in the newspaper, and he said that American schools need to be totally dismantled and redone because it is not—they're not meeting the needs of. students of this age. The first change, she says, the first change needed to save our schools is the most fundamental one. Not only must we stop forcing everyone to attend school, we must stop allowing the attendance of so-called students who are not interested in studying. Mandatory school attendance is based upon the idea that every American has a right to basic education but as the old saying goes your rights stop where the next guides begin. A student who sincerely wants an education regardless of his or her mental or physical ability should be welcome in any school in this country but students who deliberately interfere with other students ability to learn Teachers' ability to teach and administrators' ability to maintain order should be denied a place in the classroom. They do not want an education and they should not be allowed to mark time within school walls waiting to be handed their meaningless diplomas while they make it harder for everyone around them to either provide or receive a quality education. By requiring troublemakers to attend school, we have made it impossible to deal with them in in any effective way. They have little to fear in terms of punishment. Suspension from school for a few days doesn't improve their behavior. After all, they don't want to be in school anyway. For that matter, mandatory attendance is, in many cases, nothing but a bad joke. Many chronic troublemakers are absent so often that it is virtually impossible for them to learn anything. And when they are in school, they are busy shaking down other students for their lunch money or jewelry. If we permanently banned such punks from school, educators could turn their attention away from the troublemakers and toward those students who realize that school is a serious place for serious learning. You may ask, what will become of these young people who aren't in school? But consider this, what is becoming of them now? They are not being educated. They are merely names on the school records. They are passed from grade to grade, learning nothing, making teachers and fellow students miserable. Finally, they are bumped off the conveyor belt at the end of 12th grade, oftentimes barely literate. And passed into society as high school graduates. Yes, there would be a need for alternative solutions for these young people. Let the best thinkers of our country come up with some ideas. But in the meanwhile, don't allow our schools to serve as a holding tank for people who don't want to be there. Once our schools have been turned have been returned to the control of teachers. And genuine students we could concentrate on smaller but equally meaningful reforms a good place to start would be requiring students to wear school uniforms now some places did try that and it didn't really work very well because then we had the issue of the cleanliness of the uniforms you know the upkeep of the uniforms it 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 just became another challenge you would have thought that that would have been the solution she goes on to say there would be cries of horror from the fashion slaves but the change would benefit everyone if students wore uniforms think of the mental energy that could be redirected into more productive channels yes if it could be done properly yes if you had someone uh, that would be in charge of maintaining the student's requirement to wear the uniforms. Yes. Um, she says, um, no longer would young girls feel the need to spend their evenings laying out coordinated clothing. Anxiously trying to create just the right look. The daily fashion show that currently absorbs so much of students' attentions would come to a halt. Kids from modest backgrounds could stand out because of their personalities and intelligence. Rather than being tagged as losers because they can't wear the season's hottest sneakers or jeans. Affluent kids might learn they have something to offer the world other than a fashion statement. Parents would be relieved of the pressure to deal with their offsprings, constant demands for wardrobe additions. Next, let's move to the cafeteria. What's for lunch today? (laughs) Okay. How about a Milky Way bar, a bag of Fritos, a Coke, and just to round out the meal with a vegetable, maybe some french fries. And then back to the classroom for a few hours of intense mental activity, fueled on fat, salt and sugar. What a joke. School is an institution of education and that education should be continued as students sit down to eat. Here is a perfect opportunity to teach a whole generation of Americans about nutrition and we are blowing it. School cafeterias of all places should demonstrate how a healthful, low-fat, well-balanced diet produces healthy, energetic, mentally alert people. Instead, we allow school cafeterias to dispense the same junk food that kids could buy in any mall. Overhaul the cafeterias. Out with the candy, soda, chips, and fries. In with the salads, whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. Well, fast forward to... 2018, when uh, Michelle Obama uh, tried to incorporate these type of things, and everybody went ballistic. Some people went ballistic. Okay, they, you know, they would rather the soldiers look. She tried it. Okay, even in the garden, in the back of the White House. Turning our attention away from what goes on during school hours, let's consider what happens after the final bell rings. Some school-sponsored activities are all too to the good. Bands, choirs, foreign language field trips, chess or skiing or drama clubs are sensible parts of an extracurricular plan. They bring together kids with similar interests to develop their talents and leadership ability. But other common school activities are not the business of education. The prime example of inappropriate school activity is in competitive sports between the schools. Intramural sports are great. Students need an outlet for their energies and friendly competition against one's classmates. On the basketball court or baseball diving is fun and physically beneficial but the wholesome fun of sports is quickly ruined by the competitive team system school athletes quickly become the campus idols encouraged to look down upon classmates with less physical ability schools concentrate enormous amounts of time money and attention upon their teams driving home the point that competitive sports are the really important part of school. Students are herded in the gymnasiums for pep rallies that whip up adoration of the chosen few and encourage hatred of rival schools. Boys, teams are supplied with squads of cheerleading girls. Let's not even get into what the subliminal message is there. (laughs) This girl, this lady, if communities feel they must have competitive sports, let local businesses or even professional teams organize and fund the programs. But school budgets and time should be spent on programs that benefit more than an elite field. Another school-related activity that should get the ax is the fluff-headed, money-eating, misery-inducing event known as the prom. Whoa, she's going in on the prom. How in the world did the schools of America get involved in this showcase of excess? Proms have to be the epitome of everything that is wrong, tasteless, misdirected, inappropriate, and just plain sad about the way we bring up our young people. Instead of simply letting the kids put out a dance, we've turned the prom into a bloated nightmare that ruins young people's budgets, self-image, and even their lives. The pressure to show up at the prom with the best-looking date in the most expensive clothes, wearing the most exotic flowers, running in the most extravagant form of transportation, dominates the thinking of many students for months before the prom itself. Students cling to doomed, even abusive, romantic relationships rather than risk being dateless for for this night of nights. They lose any concept of meaningful values as they implore their parents for more and more and more money to throw into the jaws of the prom god. The adult trappings of the prom, the slinky dresses, emphasis on romance, slow dancing, nightclub atmosphere, all encourages kids to engage in behavior that can have tragic consequences. Who knows how many unplanned pregnancies And alcohol related accidents can be directly attributed to the pressures of prom night. And yet, not going to the prom seems a fate worse than death to many young people. And yet, not going to the prom seems a fate worse than death to many young people. Not going to the prom, she says. Let me read that one more time. She says, and yet, not. Not going to the prom seems a fate worse than death to many young people because of all the hype about the wonder and romance of it all. Schools are not in the business of providing wonder and romance, and it's high time we remembered that. We have lost track of the purpose of our schools. They are not intended to be centers for fun, entertainment, and social climbing. They are supposed to be institutions for learning and hard work. Let's institute the changes suggested here, plus dozens more, without apology, and get American schools back to business. And this is an article by Anita Garland. Let's really reform our schools. I am TB Wahid. Black Living Room Talk. Peace, love, and light. Please stay tuned to Black Living Room Talk for more conversation, stories, and information.